Welcome to SatNuts, the podcast. I'm your host, Drew Klein, VP of Seacom Satellite Systems. What is a SatNut? SatNuts are the shrewd, engaging characters from the space and SATCOM business. Yes, they do exist. This podcast is where we discuss past decisions, current markets, and future endeavors. This podcast is brought to you by Accelerate Technology Group. Accelerate is a global market leader in the provision of data, video, voice, and internet via satellite, and wireless solutions to emergency services and government organizations. Through innovative and seamless integration of the company's products and services, Accelerate enable its customers the ease, freedom, and security to rapidly deploy resilient and reliable communications anytime, anywhere. The company is headquartered in Cardiff, Wales, but has offices and subsidiaries in France, United Arab Emirates, Australia, and in the United States. Visit their website at www.accelerate-group.com. That's www.accelerate-group.com. Welcome to episode 0003. I actually wanted this one to be our first podcast episode because our guest, David Savage, David Savage Accelerate Technology Group, was actually Seacom's very first reseller. Unfortunately, I blew it. It all worked out in the end. We had a great conversation. David is the uh, founder, and, or he's, excuse me, the group executive chairman at Accelerate Technology Group. He is a um, fantastic character. Uh, smart as a whip, can't get anything by him. The guy is more than a satellite nut. He's a he's a pilot. He's a family man, former record producer, son of a miner, barroom brawler. I might have made that one up. Uh, he's also a SATCOM emergency response pioneer. Certainly relevant in today's day and age. Accelerate is the UK market leader in the provision of communication data for blue light vehicles. He's a great guest and super interesting guy, longtime Seacom partner. I think we had a fun and open discussion. And ladies and gentlemen, let's get nuts with our guest, David Savage. Hello, mate. Hello, Drew. How are you? Oh, uh, good. How's it going? Yeah. So, which one of us gave who? COVID-19 <laughs> oh that is a very very interesting question because I was just about to ask you I said okay in hindsight we probably should not have gone to the DC show in hindsight yeah so do you know anybody who caught it I mean without re- without revealing who they are I mean did you did you hear about anybody no no um no I, I mean there were, there were plenty of people who didn't make it certainly those coming from Europe so the ESA guys, etc., and uh, I, I, you know, that the difficulty is I, I'm kind of um, we had, you know, governments had played this down, and um, you know, still a lot of people were saying, ah, oh, well, you know, what's the problem? It's bit just flu, and it's obviously a lot more serious than just flu, isn't it? So, um, yeah. yeah, you're right. With the benefit of hindsight, probably shouldn't have gone. Uh, but we, we, you know, we would have needed a really good reason not to go because we had some real interesting things on our agenda. And, and funny enough, um, in particularly, you know, all to do with this pandemic, we were moving into kind of healthcare applications generally anyway. So 
recommend vehicles, fine, that's our core business. But, you know, we're doing hundreds and hundreds of ambulances uh, in terms of um, turning them into smart ambulances. So different kinds of technology, et cetera. And I, I, I desperately want to, us to t get into connectivity and other applications as well for care homes and GP surgeries and stuff like that. Um, I just think we'll, you know, and, and this is, you know, people are looking at this current crisis and there are going to be some lessons learned and we will all work differently and other professions will work differently as well as a result of it. So big game changer. Yeah, and, there's uh, there's a there's a I, lot of money being thrown into our business now. It's 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 insane the amount of money and the and the and the caliber of people that are getting into our business. Um, you know, these big big players in in the tech world are, you know, it, it's it's a little nerve wracking to see these guys who are some of the richest in the whole world right now, whether it's Bezos or Zuckerberg or Musk or whoever you know, starting to dip their toe, actually not even really dip their toe, they're kind of doing cannonballs into our pool that is the SATCOM world. Does that make you a bit nervous to think that, uh, you know, maybe these guys are, because are, we're already starting to see some of the epic failures, whether it's um, OneWeb or LeoSat or, or any of these yeah. new, do, 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 do you, does that make you a bit concerned to see those kinds of uh, uh, investments being made? Because it, you know, doesn't always work out. So the answer is not at all uh, for me um, because we're applications driven. So I, I don't get up every morning and do cartwheels because I think, oh, well, yeah, I'd love to own a teleport. I'd love to own um, a spacecraft. Um, I leave that to the big boys. Um, I want them to um, put those networks in place. Um, I want those networks to be everywhere. And I then don't think at all um, that they can do the kind of bespoke things, which don't, don't get me wrong. I think Bezos and I think you know uh, Musk, etc. They they could become the enemy for the mobile networks um, potentially, but but generally speaking, at the moment they're going to be operating in areas where the mobile networks can't find an economical model to operate anywhere. Mm. In you know in terms of geographical locations, the population centres are still going to need. So the major cities are still going to be using 4, 5G. So that's the territory of the, of the mobile phone networks. And in those, um, in those city areas, the Leos might not. And, you know, and, and I know there's a lot of talk about you know, where the elevations are going to be. So the, it's almost going to be straight up. So maybe as you can see between skyscrapers and so forth. But, but I really think that in the cities, we're going to be using 5G and then when we step outside of our cities, when we start seeing those 5G services tested in terms of coverage, that's when those LEO networks will come into play. Um, and I think the other thing is, and we are talking to all of these people. I see great opportunities for us. And I kind of see us as still being in a niche marketplace. So emergency responders, government applications, et cetera. The sort of stuff, frankly, that Elon Musk probably can't be bothered with mm. um bezos can't be bothered with because it's too messy and it's too bitty um I, and and actually those clients when you talk to them they always want something different as well they don't want something that's just off the shelf they'll want the network that's absolutely fine but you know what the network's just the network let's assume the networks exist anyway it's what you can do on the network which makes the difference 
And that's something we realized from, you know, it, we probably near enough went broke at least a dozen times between 2001 and 2006. I don't think we made any money, actually, for five or six years. In fact, we lost money consistently for those periods of time. Mm. I had to sell two houses to keep our business going during that period of time. But I think I'd got to the point where, you know, once you're in getting so deep, it's too late to bail out. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and I'm glad we didn't is the truth. But lots of people probably wouldn't have been able to afford to to stay the distance and or I'm too stubborn or whatever the reasons are. But the fact of the matter is we came through that period. But it was probably around about 2005, four years after we started the business that I really began to realize that what the client really wanted was someone to just do everything. They didn't want to deal with someone else who was operating satellites, and they didn't want to deal with somebody else who was doing this bit. They actually wanted a, a an end-to-end provider who could do all of that stuff and manage the networks and all the rest of it. And, and that's why, really, I think we, you know, we changed the business. And when people say, well, you know, what differentiates Accelerate, David? But the story I tell really is that we're an interesting or unusual blend of inventor developer. We actually do invent stuff and we have patents and we own IP. Mm. Um, there's no point in reinventing the wheel, Drew. So you're a great example of, you know, the amount of times, you know, you know, why don't you develop your own satellite platform for trucks and stuff like that? No, because you guys do that really well. Why right. the hell? Do we want to reinvent the wheel? But we want to no. do all the other stuff. There is a method to my madness for wanting to do the first Satnuts podcast with you. And that's because, as I'm sure you might remember, or maybe you don't, but 15 years ago, Accelerate was Seacom's first reseller partner. And in this business, like in most businesses, you can't do it on your own. You have to work with somebody who can who has more expertise in certain areas than you that can make your life easier and make your business better and make your customers happier. And so, you know, like, like all partnerships, you know, we, we have our ups and downs, uh, things go, you know, whether it's a marriage or a business association, you know, things go up and down hopefully they, they, they go more up than they go down. But so how do you feel that your relationships with your partners uh, has influenced your business? Um, very dramatically. Uh, it's, uh, you know, and, and it, there's not just you that we've been working with for this amount of time. Um, we're very, very loyal. Um, that doesn't mean to say that we mustn't look around. Um, and, I, I, and, and, you know, I can remember the very early days, Drew, and you might not even know this, but actually, you know, when your father and I, first started doing business together um, and we wanted to bring Seacom platforms into the UK. And we, you know, I don't care what our competitors say. The bottom line is we introduced this concept to the emergency services, certainly in Europe, in terms of using satellite on um, incident command vehicles so that these mobile offices actually could actually do something for a change, you know, instead of just being there on a number of wheels and, you know, you had a whiteboard on a command vehicle. Oh, you could definitely make a cup of tea. How about we actually turn these things into proper mobile headquarters where everything you do in your city center office, you can do anywhere you send the vehicle. 
And I didn't want to go down uh, the military route. So, you know, we did look at the market at the time in terms of satellite antennas, manufacturers that are around. And I didn't want to go down the broadcast um, um, uh, road either, because in those two marketplaces, it seemed to me that the, the customers in those marketplaces had a lot more money available to buy stuff than the emergency responder market. I think people make the mistake of thinking because the emergency first responders are government funded, that they've got more money than sense. And it's absolutely the opposite. Budgets are extraordinarily tight in those sectors. That's my experience. And we looked around and we found these guys in um, in Canada called CECOM. And uh, we thought we'd, that you know, and look, I hope you don't mind me saying, but you're at the right price point. You're not a cheap product or a, or a, a cheap manufacturer, but you're not the most expensive either. And it was actually very well engineered. So to me, that's a great combination of well-engineered, lasted test of time. And by the way, we've got customers, our original, we've still got original customers using CECOM platforms, and they've had them over 15 years and they still work like clockwork. Okay. That's awesome. I know. That's great. So, and I see and I see the pictures uh, in the UK, especially during the, the current um, cri- COVID crisis of these ambulances that are, you know, roaming around the, the island with our kit and your gear and your support. And it's uh, yeah. it's so great to see, uh, you know, our, our mutual solutions, you know, helping out in these in these yeah. dire situations. Yeah. So so the CECOM thing was. For us, it was it was the right combination. But look, the, it was a difficult road in the early days. It was yeah. difficult for us because I wrong guests. I, I you know what I've never I heard the sales. stories. I heard the stories, man. The stories are great, <laughs> and the stories are are rich, and they are um, they're unique. And and you know, I kind of came into it shortly after. Uh, you know, the partnership was on a kind of an up or a down. It was it was heading heading down, and you know. I'm 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 a different kind of a person than my father, you know, who's who's um, who's a very very uh, strong and 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 forthright businessman, and I think you and him are very similar, and that's why you know you put two bulls of the same uh, caliber, <laughs> put two bulls of the same caliber in the ring, and they're gonna just keep button heads, uh, and sometimes you need to get a guy with a red cape in there to 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 break it up, but and that's why you know I see these partnerships. Um, this was a relatively new concept for me to understand was how to work as a manufacturer between a reseller partner and just try to help the partner work with his end customer and don't get in the way and don't police uh, between partners, let them handle their own business. That seems to be a big a big issue in, in any manufacturing side. Do you, do you see that a lot where you are competing with people uh, in in your in, in, on the island there, do, are you do you find a lot of competition, um, aggressive competition between each other? Um, I I think probably. I mean, my, it's interesting that you know you're. I, I think you're the calming influence in the family part of Seacom, and my daughter has the same role in my business. So um, generally, if, if if your father and I were uh, in the process of falling out, we'd we'd just hand it over to you and Nicola to square up and everything and peace would break out. It would be great. Um, but, but, you know, I, and, and look, we're all different. Um, you know, I've come up the hard way. So, you know, my kids have been very well educated. Um, I've had a number of businesses, you know, my, my dad was a miner. 
Rangers, for Christ's sake. So, so you know, there's no silver spoon here. Um, you know, we started the business. I've started a number of businesses, done reasonably well, um, but I've never had anything to fall back on, no family money, etc. So maybe I do take things more personally than I should. Um, I'm hoping as I get older, I'll mellow a bit, but there's no sign of it yet. I see um, it. I see it. No, no, no. I see it, man. I see, I see, <laughs> I see not just like guys like you and Leslie mellowing, um, but, but maybe some of the, uh, some of your, you know, grit and hard, hard assness being pushed off towards people like Nicola and I, just to, just to, just to let everybody know that, you know, Accelerate is, is a family business um, in as much as it is a, a, a global enterprise. Your daughter, Nicola, and your wife, Judith, are working there um, and have been there since the very beginning, I believe. And uh, is there somebody I'm missing that's also from your family that works at Accelerate? Yeah, so, so, so Mark, my son, is in the business and uh, he, he's, he should be furloughed because uh, he actually uh, helps operate our French uh, yacht business, our maritime business. So we we have a similar business, but in a different market, in the yacht market. And of course, the whole of France is uh, in lockdown at the moment. So I've got uh, French employees who can't go to work, customers who can't move their boats, etc., etc. So so that's kind of a bit difficult. But I, I, just just going back to because I, I didn't quite finish, and then I want to come back to the family thing because that's quite important as well. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned the competitive thing, and you know the 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 kind of um, the, the 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 ethos there. The 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 problem I've got always, Drew, is very difficult. I see us as a developer and a pioneer, and there's nothing annoys someone more than actually developing a market, and then someone who didn't go through the school of hard knocks comes along. And says, oh, I think I'll just copy that. You must have the same, for goodness sakes, in your business. And 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 I, I, I'll, I'll probably never feel easy about that. Now, I, what I've always said is that in a fair fight, or because that's sometimes what it is, or a, you know, a bid or a tender or whatever. Look, at the end of the day, if someone wins a deal from us because they were better than we are, uh, or, or they gave the customer advantages that we couldn't give, whatever those advantages were, then there's not a lot I can say about that. Mm. But I've always said that, you know, if, if, if a customer writes the technical specification of so, sometimes very complex projects, by the way, you know, these integration things, this is way beyond just sticking a satellite platform on a, on a vehicle. It's all the back office integration. It's inventing apps for them. Uh, inventing user interfaces so that ordinary people called paramedics, police officers and fire officers who shouldn't need to be tech savvy or IT savvy can actually go about their day job and everything will just absolutely work first time in these mission critical environments. That's really, really important. So, you know, I, I, I do have very strong feelings about that. And and as long as it's a level playing field, I'm comfortable with it. And as long yeah. as those competitors actually are up to the job and they support those clients um, the way they should. Otherwise, I get very annoyed about it and I can't help my feelings about it. <laughs> well, you know, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, I guess they say. So, you know, it's <laughs> it's it's one of those it's one of those things where you, you know, for us, it's the same. You know, we, we see a lot of, you know, antenna manufacturers coming along and, you know, building product. You know, we were one of the first, um, if not the first, to do what we do. So we've been we've been fighting this off the whole time, and 
on a global scale. And so we, we understand that. And I guess, but when it comes to competition, you know, it's really one of those things where you don't mind some decent competition, you know, somebody who's making a high quality product or, or yep. offering a high quality service. And, and, you know, you, you don't mind butting heads with somebody like that because you're going to win some, you're going to lose some, but at the same time, uh, there is an ethics involved. In, um, there is uh, a quality issue involved, and and those guys who don't perform to you know up to snuff, whether it's performing with a high quality service or or offering a high quality product, I mean, they just go away eventually. So you don't yeah. really have to worry about them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Drew, you know, you mentioned earlier on, you know, there's been quite a lot of press, obviously, everywhere about COVID nineteen, and um, clearly the things that have happened in the UK. Uh, we've set up this 4,000-bed temporary hospital in London's Excel, and our customers are there. They are part of the command uh, regime there, and our and I describe these as our command vehicles are there. They're the customers, really, but, you know, I'm so passionate about this. I regard them as our vehicles. The vehicles you've seen on TV and in the press are our vehicles with your product on. And by the way, those vehicles go back all the way to 2007. Okay, they're still working. Damn it! Um, it's this damn get... planned obsolescence that we haven't figured out yet. <laughs> We're supposed to make those. We make them too well because you know, ideally, they should you know explode after six to eight years. But we made them too damn well. Yeah, sorry. Carry on. <laughs> so, uh, you know, don't get me wrong. They get technical refreshes, and that doesn't. You know, we come on, you know you've upgraded controllers and software and stuff like that. So they'll have had all of that. But but the general principle of what we supplied in 2007 is still there. It just gets a periodic technical refresh. Yeah. They're working now because the, the, the solution was right at the beginning. The integration was right at the beginning. And then the support that's continued since 2007 has also been right as well. So you know, a sustainable business model, we are required to make money so we can provide these levels of service. I'm not, you know, I'm unapologetic about that. Not everybody sees that. Um, I think it's easier in the emergency services because obviously they appreciate that what they're doing is mission critical. So, but but don't get me wrong, you know, the, the front line appreciate it, but that doesn't necessarily apply to the bean counters who are signing off the procurement side of things. You know, mm -hmm. they, they just look at things a lot more starkly and look at the pricing and say, well, you know, why? I can't see why that would be more expensive compared to that. And that's because they don't know our business and they don't know lots of things, actually. Right. Um, so, but that's, you know, that boils down to the right levels of customer engagement at the beginning. So they understand, we understand what they want. And, and that's really important as well, because as I say, you know, we're a developer. So um, we're developing stuff in tandem with our clients. I would like, you know, I'd love to say we've, We've come up with some great ideas, but the vast majority of great ideas were actually our customers' ideas in the first place. We're just the people who translate them. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Seacom Satellite Systems. Seacom is a pioneer and world leader in the mobile auto-pointing satellite antenna business. The company has sold more than 9,000 systems into over 100 countries. The product line includes vehicle-mounted driveaways, transportable case-based flyaways, backpack man-pack antennas, and fixed motorized products. 
all come with CECOM's proprietary iNet View controller system, which enables users to find broadband via satellite with just the push of a button. CECOM is also in late-stage development, partnered with the University of Waterloo, of a revolutionary KA-band electronically steerable phased array antenna technology that has the potential to forever change the antenna business. The company is publicly traded on the Canadian Venture Exchange under the symbol CMI and on the US OTC under the symbol CYSNF. Visit the website at www.c-comsat.com. That's www.c-comsat.com. So the, obviously uh, the UK has had interesting moments during this, this COVID crisis. You know, you're, you had Boris, your prime minister, near death, the country dealing with the political implications of Brexit. So what is the what is the feeling that you feel on the ground there in the UK? Are, are the public are the public losing it or are they, you know, being obedient serfs or are they being inflammatory <laughs> belligerents? Like what's going on over there in the UK? What do you see on the ground? Well, the the Brits aren't like the French. You know, we you know, we 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 don't tend to have revolutions here. So um, mm. I, I think we're pretty patient we're pretty easy going we're not the kind of people that blockade and protest and stuff like that unless it's really bad so obviously we've you know, had our share of protests about the environment and stuff like that so as people lose patience with that um but again this is just you know this is uh tomorrow will be the start of week five so it's getting interesting um it's also interesting that the weather has been unusually good here in Britain for a while. Um, so I think, uh, you know, uh, there are a lot of employees, a lot of workers who are furloughed. So they're receiving um, 80 percent of their um, of their salaries is paid for by the government up to a maximum of two and a half thousand pounds a month. Um, so for some of those people that are receiving that, um, they're probably, frankly, some of them are quite enjoying the time off. Mm. Um, and, you know, the, <laughs> I'm risking some people protesting when I say that. But look, this is the real world. You know, there are lots of people who don't enjoy their jobs. Um, lots of people who are actually enjoying time with their families. Mm. And I know it's a terrible reason why it's all happening. But the bottom line is some people are seeing their families a lot more of the families and and that's probably not a bad thing right um, but it's so, not it's not a normal thing right i mean we, we have to at some point return to what was normal you know yeah. and so when, when do you see that happening i mean is there do you have any idea or thoughts about a timeline or in your in your mind that you see what's going on for the uk so our prime minister boris johnson allegedly is back to work um tomorrow which is so oh, what's the date tomorrow that's the um god i haven't got my date here i've lost track of of time is it the 25th or the 26th of uh, april um so boris is back and, and certainly one of his key questions and the pressure he is under from business is what's the plan to get britain back to work now it's okay everyone's saying well you know we can't risk further infection. And I agree, by the way. So human life comes first, unlike um, some of the things that have been said uh, in some quarters. Um, um, you know, lots of people are experiencing tragedy at the moment and will experience further tragedy. So very, very important that we do everything we can to protect life. 
David, one of my favorite questions to ask is, who is your first boss? I'll tell you why. Most of the serial entrepreneurs in our business, I guess any business, really have have no business answering to anyone. Um, and it's obviously we could get hyperbolic and say, you know, we all have our bosses, whether it's your spouse or a bank or a deity. But I, I'm of the belief that the first job you have, the first meaningful boss that you have, has an enormous impact on you. So, 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 who was your first boss, and and what impact <laughs> did he or she leave on you? I don't think I'm your typical or serial entrepreneur. Although, don't get me wrong, I've wanted to run my own business as long as I can remember. But I couldn't understand why people would maybe have a good job and take their life savings uh, or get made redundant because there's all sorts of reasons people start in business and, uh, and, and put everything on the line, put their houses on the line, work all the hours that God sends for something that doesn't have much of an upside. So I was always very, very patient. So, um, you know, I did the usual thing, uh, went to grammar school, um, got my qualifications, didn't want to go to the university, couldn't see the point of that, wanted to get into sales. So my first job actually was a, a training export manager with a tailoring group, very large tailoring group in the UK that made suits. And, uh, and uh, I was a training export manager for that business. And, uh, and my first boss was a guy called Colin Byrne. And we had a whale of a time and I was a young guy and uh, it was all really good fun. Not what I wanted to do. And then I went through a, 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 a series of jobs because, again, I was being patient. I hadn't found the right thing for me or anything that could kind of uh, give me the, the inspiration I needed to put everything on the line. And I actually, uh, by the time, so my first job was at 18. And then I got a job when I was about 25, I think, which I re regard as my first proper job. It was the first job. I really loved and 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 became very career minded. And it was an American multinational. It was a technology company. And I'd worked for a bank before as well. So I'd had a series of really good jobs. So, I, I, you know, I never was wanting for a for a for a good job. Um, as I say, I, I always wanted to do my own thing, but I just never found the thing that could persuade me to put everything on the line. And mm. uh, so I worked for that technology company and that was probably by then 1985 so this was the very start of the mobile phone boom by the way so the cellular phone industry started in the uk in 1985 and i tried to persuade my then boss at this american multinational technology company to get into the mobile phone business and uh, his name was bill cole and he said to me he said okay david he said well you know go off and do some research and come back and if you can convince me this is a good idea, maybe we'll have a look at it within um, within the, the UK company. And uh, and I went back and I did my presentation. I must have done a really crap job because uh, at the end of my mm. presentation, bear in mind, I'm trying to persuade him to mm. take the business I was employed by into the new mobile phone industry. And at the end of my presentation, my American boss was a fatal combination of he's an American and an accountant. And his words to me about the mobile phone industry right at the start of the mobile phone um, uh, revolution in 1985-86, he turned around to me, he said, you know, he said, gee, bud, he said, you know what I think? I think this is going to be a real damp squib. This is going to be just like CB. And, it, and with those words, he killed the whole idea 
<laughs> I was going into the mobile phone business. But at that point in time, I'd, I'd worked for that company for about four years. Um, I was going places. I was uh, a senior manager and probably would have become their sales director in the UK. But I sat down and I thought, this is lunacy. I'm working for a guy, and I love the guy to death, but I'm working for a guy who actually thinks the mobile phone industry is going to be just like CB. <laughs> it's amazing how how wrong uh, some of our projections, and not not to pick on your old boss, but and we've all we've all made some projections that have just been so dead wrong, and it's a it's a real strike to the ego to come back and admit later how dead wrong one can be in in such a in such a massive scale you know where you could say that the cellular phone industry is going to be like cb or it reminds me of uh, paul krugman who's a famous economist who said that you know the internet was going to have as much effect on on the on the world as the fax machine you know just dead wrong and uh, it's it's interesting to go back and look at these projections and and you know gather you your humility in a pile and put it put it in the corner for later yeah so to finish that story which i didn't want it to be a long story but you asked me a question first boss and, and so there were two memorable bosses really for me my first one and that particular one and that particular one that american accountant and and as i say he became he was a dear friend of mine and, and until he died he was a dear friend of mine mm. and uh, but i was convinced he was wrong and uh, one of the companies that helped me with my research um, about the mobile phone business, when I presented to him, um, I got disenchanted with my job with my American technology company because I just thought he was playing wrong. He's just absolutely crackers. And one of the companies that helped me with my research actually employed me, hmm. gave me a job uh, because they could see I was very keen on this new emerging mobile phone technology. And uh, so I, I joined um, uh, that business company, a big public company in the UK called Granada Group. And within two weeks of me joining the company, um, my new boss, uh, not the guy who interviewed me, but my new boss and my new job, his first words to me in first meeting me were, David, I don't think we should have gone into the mobile phone business. And I went home. <laughs> pretty distraught actually because i'd given up a pretty good job with an american corporation and uh, i'd moved into this new emerging mobile phone business and i had to explain to my wife that maybe he's, i'd made a bit of a serious um, career blunder by moving to this mobile phone company because i have a new boss who doesn't think we should have gone into it in the first place and i had six months of listening to this crap from this idiot <laughs> about the mobile phone business and um I was kind of the black sheep of this of this group of companies. And uh, every month I'd go to a management meeting and they'd have all these successful general managers of different divisions. And I'd be the black sheep of the family in the mobile phone business. And they just plainly didn't want to be in it. But instead of getting a job somewhere else, I decided to ring the group managing director of this particular business, uh, a bloke called Bill Andrews. And I said, Bill, it's clear that you don't want to be in the business. So if you don't have the stomach for it, um, if you're going to sell it or if you're going to close it, will you sell it to me? And he said, David, he said, if you can show me that you can get the funds together to buy this business off us, you're absolutely right. This is probably not a business for us. Uh, if you can show you can fund this thing, I'll sell the business to you. And that's exactly what I did. So in 1986, I bought the business. I put my house on the line. I remortgaged my house 
because actually I was so convinced that this was going to be a big industry that that was kind of the catalyst for me that made it worth putting everything on the line because although the downsides were the same, you still lost your house if you went broke, but the upsides were extreme. And um, I ended up buying a business for not a huge amount of money. But I'll be frank about it. I, I think I paid £136,000 for a business with seven employees. And 10 years later, I sold it to Vodafone Group for £42 million, and we had 450 employees. So wow. I guess I, I, I got the, the bit, you know, certain elements of that um, right. Would you say that that was your? Would you say that that was your biggest professional victory? That 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 accomplishment? No, no. Actually, funny enough, um, because I, I I ended up when I sold business to Vodafone. At the point I sold it, I actually hated it, and and I hated it because the industry had changed. We'd become a consumer business, and and I I'm not a great fan of consumer businesses. I like business to business. Um, I, I wasn't in control of our own destiny either. And in reality, I was simply a reseller for the for the mobile phone networks. We weren't adding value. We weren't doing anything spectacular, and it had become pretty tedious and had become a bit of a treadmill. And uh, so, for ten years, although I grew that business into a you know a significant, significantly large business, it wasn't making any money. The only people that were making any money out of it were actually the retailers the people with the shops on the high street and the mobile phone networks themselves and us in the middle weren't actually making any money. And, uh, and that became pretty tedious. So um, at the time I sold the business, I was actually very glad to get out of it. We did okay. That's fine. But I'd kind of lost my, I'd lost my mojo and, uh, and I was looking for something else. So, so the business I'm in now, it's interesting because that business I sold after 10 years, Accelerate Technology is a business I founded in 2001. So we've been going nearly 20 years and there's not a day in that 19, 20 years that hasn't been exciting or hasn't been interesting. And that to me is the really important thing because we're a combination of four things which I think is important. We're an inventor. We do actually invent and develop stuff. We're an integrator and a bloody good integrator at that. It's important that things we sell actually work and are fit for purpose. We're a maintainer. I believe that we should look after the things that we sell throughout the, you know, the, the contract period for, for the life of the contract. And then we're a network operator as well, or a virtual network operator, because that's important as well, because if the stuff that we sell and provide is then let down by the networks themselves that they operate over, then that's not a great existence either. So the thing I'm most proud of is the fact that actually we make money. We, I think we're a, a, a good employer. We look after our people. We've stood the test of time and quite a few challenges. Um, so it's interesting to see, you know, what's happening with this COVID crisis. Um, in some parts of our business, in fact, in our main business, we're absolutely, my, my senior team are absolutely flat out. Um, we're flat out supporting customers um, through the crisis because it's first responders, but we're also flat out with some new opportunities that have come along as well. So um, I think the way we do business, I think the way we look after people, I think healthcare is going to change dramatically. And if we're shrewd and if we're clever and smart and we're innovative and we take some, you know, take some risks as well, 
I think uh, there's a whole new world out there that uh, that we can capitalize on. So there are some positive impacts from this current debacle for certain ver- verticals like telemedicine and mobile education and uh, maybe government emergency response. We should, though, expect to see a number of businesses go under. Speedcast comes to mind. So, so who in the supply chain for the SATCOM industry do you expect will take the biggest hit during this crisis? Will it be the operators, the service providers, manufacturers, uh, system integrators? Uh, who, who's going to take the biggest hit? Isn't it bizarre or ironic that a few months ago, the likes of Speedcast would be, um, uh, you know, sending out lots of PR about what a fantastic their job they're doing with, you know, Carnival Cruise Lines or whoever. I may have got the, the wrong cruise line, by the way. But so so the big cruise ships are are consuming bandwidth like it's going out of fashion in terms of satellite capacity, etc. But of course, the big cruise lines at the moment aren't doing anything. They're idle and they're not using that capacity and therefore they don't want to pay for it. And then, of course, the other sector that uh, Speedcast appear to have been um, overexposed to as well as oil and gas. Uh, the oil industry is paying people to take oil off its hands because they can't store the stuff they're producing at the moment. So so for, for poor old Speedcast, it's been kind of a perfect storm in terms of two really big sectors of their business that have been hit very badly. But then again, I'm also inclined to say, you know, I've, I've looked at Speedcast, in fact, you know, speak us suppliers with capacity for our Australian business. And uh, it's, again, ironic that Speakcast, the reason we deal with Speakcast is that they bought a company called NewSat in Australia, who were our network supplier, our capacity supplier in Australia. And they were a small company and they were fantastic people, but they went broke and Speakcast mopped them up, picked them up and Speakcast became our supplier. Um, and, and it's funny what goes around, comes around, as they say. But uh, then Speedcast really went on, a, on, a, on, on, on an acquisition spree. And uh, I've thought for quite a while that at some point in time, they're going to catch some indigestion from all these acquisitions. Um, and, it's, a, and, it's, an interesting, uh, it's an interesting term, indigestion, uh, when you consider the inorganic growth that they were experiencing and it could only last so long right yeah so uh, you know typical company that's either funded by um, vcs or private equity or in their case public offerings etc these businesses have no idea how to grow businesses organically <laughs> right? mm. they never do um I, I talk to private equity and and venture capitalists on a fairly regular basis uh, it's not because i necessarily want to do anything with them but i might one day but you know the one of the first thing these guys talk to you about when you go and talk to them is where what advantage can they bring to the party if we don't just bring money david we can help you with acquisitions and and i look at them and think well you know why do i want to go on an acquisition spree when there's plenty of organic growth in things that we actually understand really well Mm. um but but you know when you when you go public, the rules are different and uh, you have to keep growing. Otherwise, the shareholders get crossed. Um, you can't have a CEO who can be like your dad or me. You know, we can be relatively patient. If I have a really dismal year, um, the only person I've got to apologize to really is me. Hmm. And, uh, and if I think there's a good reason why we had a, a, a bad year, 
Uh, and it was just bad timing rather than negligence or that we're a bunch of idiots or we made some bad decisions. And by the way, I make bad decisions all the time. Um, the great thing about owning your own business is as long as that bad decision doesn't wipe you out, you can get up next morning and say, well, that was a really stupid decision I made. I won't do that again. But at least you had the balls to correct it very quickly and move on and, uh, and regroup and, and build it back up again. You don't get that privilege if you're a public company. The bottom line is the market is ferocious. The shareholders are, frankly, ferocious. When I first met you, uh, you did remind me somewhat of Harry Lonsdale, the porn king from Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels. <laughs> Well-dressed, dapper, well-spoken, but you look like you know or may have killed some people with your bare hands. Do you, do you feel... <laughs> Do you feel that being uh, do you feel that being a hard ass is an important part of being a successful business owner? Um, isn't it funny? Um, people's perceptions. Um, if you were if you talk to my operations director, who's uh, she's very, very shrewd woman, very on on the ball. And she constantly tells me I'm too damn soft. Um, I I I. I I think there's a lot, a lot of room for compassion in business. Strangely enough, I'm probably come across as being pretty ferocious with my competitors. And I'm not really ferocious with them if I think they're doing a great job. And I think they're, you know, good competition and fair competition. I'm okay with it. It's, it's when I see incompetence and uh, a, a lack of effort that I get quite cross. Um, so, you know, I don't know. Uh, you, you and uh, Leslie, uh, neither of you suffer fools gladly. And that's a that's a good quality, I think, in a business owner. Maybe that's, you know, conflated with hard assness. But I, I think, you know, not suffering fools gladly is a is a is a high is a very high quality for a business owner. You can't you can't be that way and be successful, in my opinion. Uh, and, uh, and look, maybe you're right. So so I, I, yeah, I, I'm I'm old. The old school in me is, you know, you. Most people, your competitors are your enemy. And, uh, and, and, and I've worked in industries, by the way, where me and competitors, and certainly in the mobile phone industry, you know, we regularly would get together with competitors and have a fantastic time. But as soon as we went home, we were back to being enemies again. So um, I, I think that's kind of the old fashioned way. And, and, and maybe it's that is probably a bit too prominent in, in my attitude and the way I behave. Hmm. Um, but as I say, in, internally in the business, and, I, and, you know, I've got this real thing as well, is be hard, but be bloody fair. Uh, and, and fairness is something that really I care about a lot. So, you know, integrity and fairness, treating people properly, um, be difficult if you need to be, be hard if you have to be, and... Uh, and Look, you know, in business, occasionally we have to make some really hard decisions. But I'd like those—I'd like to think those decisions were made for the right reasons. Uh, but there are human beings involved, and um, and certainly, as far as my employees are concerned, or our employees are concerned, you know, there's nothing I wouldn't do to support them any way I can, and we do. Subscribe to Satnuts the podcast. Also, rate and review on Apple Music, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud. And anywhere fine podcasts are downloaded for free. Audio engineering provided by Ben Klein. Music provided by Bacon Jew. Special thanks to the entire CECOM staff. 
Stay nuts, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>